I think there's just so many things that a team can accomplish that maybe one or two individuals cannot. I think back to to my time in college, I I was uh, a halfway decent athlete and arrived at college and was quickly reminded that everybody around me was a better athlete. The coaches soon reminded me of that. But I spent four years with the team in a coaching and, and managerial capacity after playing. And I go back to those experiences where we had the sum of all these 25 or 30 young men, and it may not be the most talented person. It may not be the most athletically gifted person, but you could plug them into a spot on the field or in the batting order and the team just worked better. And and I think a lot of that perpetuates over into business. This is the Team of a Lifetime show. I'm your host, Sally Love, and I have helped hundreds of leaders in industrial manufacturing, construction, and on capital projects of up to $24 billion, transform their failing or mediocre teams into exceptional teams that delivered results that people didn't even believe were possible. And that's what the Team of a Lifetime show is all about. Success stories, successful team approaches, and lessons learned to help you transform your team into the team of a lifetime. I'm excited to introduce you to my guest, Garrett Heyer. He has team experience in sales, working in a family-owned business, and in large corporations. Plus, he was part of his collegiate baseball team, both as an athlete and as a coach and manager. He's a wealth advisor at Foster Victor, a premier financial planning firm in Greenville, South Carolina. Welcome to the show, Garrett. Thank you, Sally. I'm excited to be here, and I appreciate you having me on. I want to dive right in and start with this. Why is a high-performing team crucial at Foster Victor Wealth Advisors, or is it? Oh, I think a high-performing team is critical in many environments at Foster Victor. We touch so many areas of a financial plan or a client's financial life. There's so many moving parts, the investment side of it, the asset protection, estate planning, Nobody can be an expert in all of these areas. And so for anyone to say that one individual could outperform a team, that probably immediately puts that person at a disadvantage. Having that team allows everybody to subspecialize in something. So if a question comes from a client, I don't have to pretend to be an expert in that arena. I can walk down the hall or have that person prepared to be in the meeting that is the expert. Outside of that, I think there's just so many things that a team can accomplish that maybe one or two individuals cannot. I think back to to my time in college, I I was uh, a halfway decent athlete and arrived at college and was quickly reminded that everybody around me was a better athlete. The coaches soon reminded me of that. But I spent four years with the team in a coaching and, and managerial capacity after playing. And I go back to those experiences where we had the sum of all these 25 or 30 young men And it may not be the most talented person. It may not be the most athletically gifted person, but you could plug them into a spot on the field or in the batting order and the team just works better. And and I think a lot of that perpetuates over into business. We have people here that are insanely talented at things that I'm not. And you have to appreciate those gifts. And without a team, those opportunities wouldn't have time to show through and frankly may not allow me or some of the other people here to to do as well as they do. 
Have you ever, either on the baseball field or in your uh, career, have you ever worked with maybe a superstar where they were so full of themselves and they thought, I'm a superstar and I can handle this. And it just makes it difficult for the people around them. Oh, yeah. Whether it was baseball or in professional stops prior to Foster Victor are superstars. And oftentimes with a superstar, there may come a little bit of an ego. They've often been the best, the most talented or the most celebrated or a combination of both. And and yes, having been around those people, I think that's where true leadership becomes the most important piece is how can the leader of that organization or, or that team not even rein that person in? Because if you rein a superstar in, you're just hampering their gifts. I like to use the analogy of how can that leader of the organization take some sandpaper and just smooth the edges a little bit and then deploy that superstar to go be the best that they can be. Since y'all do have a lot of experts, how does that make your work easier in serving a client? I think first and foremost is it gives you a confidence before you've ever maybe committed to the client that you can do something to say that we do have an expert on staff so that you're not relying solely on one individual. But from there, I think the biggest component is if you can get good input data, meaning feedback from the client, information from the client, and then package that up to set expert again, tax, estate, an investment expert. If you can arm them with the data, then what it really allows you to do is function as a quarterback or maybe even step into that coach or leader position and for lack of a better term, go let that superstar go do what they do. Let's, some experts, let's just say tax, for example, maybe, maybe it's not their natural personality to be extroverted. But if, if you can gather the data and get it to them, they are a superstar at going to deploy that data. And someone like me who is in an advisory capacity takes pressure off because I don't have to worry about every segment or area of a client's financial plan. I can go introduce an expert and let them go be special at what they know and do. What do you believe is an essential team trait or characteristic for teams to achieve a high level of performance? Probably uh, one of the biggest things would be having a a standard within your organization that that everyone is going to perform at a certain level. And I, I may come in and my four-year-old may have had a rough day and my two-year-old may have got up at 442. But is that an excuse for clients who have a poor experience? Absolutely not. So I think part of it is creating some standard or threshold within your organization that everyone must be at that level. And then not saying this is our threshold and then continually allowing things that are below that threshold to, to subsist. Yeah, because that can really destroy morale and the whole culture and environment in a hurry when people do that. Could not agree more. I'm sure you see it in your organizations and your business and your relationships. If I observe a a behavior or work or deliverable that is below standard, I'm like, do I get away with that next time? Like, how did that slip through the cracks? And it just creates a waterfall of things that can just be destructive to culture and morale and all of those things. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it happens so quickly and it really spirals out of control before people even realize what's happening to them. Yeah. And my business career started in a family business. It wasn't my family business. My family would have, we would have strangled each other (laughs) if young me was forced to work directly with my parents. Even at that point, that family, and they were just blessed to embrace conversations around, hey, this is our standard and we're not going to let things drop below that standard. And the company grew rapidly and it was a struggle. But to not shy away from those conversations, obviously stops in corporate America, that pendulum swing, things become a little more murky in what the standard is and who upholds those standards. That's probably one of my favorite things being back here at Foster Victor is that we're committed to that standard that we talk about it frequently. So do y'all talk about your staff meetings and things like that? Staff meetings. I mean, we have development days throughout the year where the team's together. It's obviously a a big part of those topics. But yes, it's a frequent message during our Monday staff meetings of what the standard is, work that meets that standard, and then having conversations that are direct and fruitful when there are things that don't meet that standard. Hmm. What's your take on the importance of attitude? I think attitude is critical. And and this is one that 25-year-old me, obviously, as part of growing up, I would have answered this question dramatically differently that, that attitude doesn't necessarily have that much effect, but it does. And it has effect in areas that maybe you don't recognize at the time. I'll go back to the example of my two-year-old waking up early and me coming in with a bad attitude. If the first person I see in my office, that interaction isn't great, then maybe they handle me with kit gloves the rest of the day, or they're like, I'm, I'm going to try to avoid that person. If my energy is low in the first meeting with a client, one, that's just not fair to them. But two, what does that do for the other people who've prepared and brought their A game for that meeting? I think attitude can permeate through an organization. At the same time, I think there's a danger of fake positivity or an attitude that isn't authentic. Mm -hmm. And there's a double-edged sword there. Attitude can affect so many things, but it's got to be authentic to that person, that situation and everything that's going on. And there's negatives to both sides of those, if, if not harnessed properly. And I think so many of us have natural responses to things. I think the immediate reaction to something uh, is maybe an attitude that is harder to control, but how do we let it affect our attitude through the remainder of the day is something that we can control. Absolutely I mean, it is. But that can be a slippery slope because if you head down the wrong fork in the road from that initial reaction, it can ruin your attitude or environment for the rest of the day. Or you can choose to say, no, I'm going to go down the other fork in the road and default back to whatever a better attitude or mental place is. What is a skill that you had to develop to become a better leader? I think part of it is for me, just an inherent confidence, whether it was in my prior business or whether it was, which was sales for 10 years or making the transition to a financial services position, you have some success. Naturally, you probably generate some confidence to that. And that kind of permeates through relationships, whether it's uh, functioning as a leader, training the next person coming up in sales or, or interacting with people here at Foster Victor. I think generating a, a, a toolbox 
learning how to use them, those are largely functional skills. But as, as you become a leader, there's got to be some confidence and conviction in where you're headed. And, and I think some of that, we use an analogy, a sports analogy. Again, we use enough of them, but we just talk about repetitions and, and cuts at the ball. And some of it is you do have to get beat up and bloodied and, and then emerge from that and say, okay, I learned from this. That's going to change going forward. I, I think a certain amount of it is just some hardening and life lessons that come with successes in business, failures in business, um, and, and that positions you to be a better leader. Looking back, I talk about my parents. I didn't probably recognize it at the time, but I mentioned that part of their parenting style was to create a place where I could fail, but then they were immediately there to catch me. And I think you have to build an acumen to, to get to that place where you can be a leader and help navigate those situations for the people that you're leading. So when I think about the kind of work that you do, I think about your clients. And from my perspective, you and your clients are also a team. What's your perspective on that? Oh, 100%. So when you start to talk about our relationship, a, a client typically engages us for some level of expertise, or maybe this is a burden for them, or they don't necessarily have the time, or maybe they need a quarterback that can just pull it all together. Maybe they have an expert or two already on the team, but they've got a great running back or a wide receiver, but they don't have a quarterback to call the play and bring all these pieces together. Within that, there's only so much that our team here can do without input from the client. You hear the data in, data out analogy. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be things throughout the process, whether it's gathering data, whether it's answers to a question, or maybe, hey, we're at a decision-making process and we've actually, we need some input from the client. They hold an integral part of the team. I would like to think that our process helps make that very collaborative and educational. Uh, but they're an integral part uh, of our, our team and ultimately uh, the relationships and, and what we hope are lifelong relationships that we build through that process. Feel free to draw on your athletic experiences or your working experiences. But if you were observing what I would refer to as a high performer working right alongside a low performer, what differences would you see? when it came to teamwork? So specifically, I think when you observe high performers, in a way, part of it goes back to that standard and then maybe not letting success go to their head. But so you mentioned two team members and maybe one is a known high performer or has a history of being a high performer. And then you have someone who may or may not be performing at that same level or the prescribed level. There could be any number of things. Maybe they're learning a new position. Maybe they just are still building a set of skills and growing as a team member, and that doesn't allow them to perform at that level. I think that kind of the difference there is maybe the, the commitment that, that people bring to the table each day. So I think one of the things, it's not a, a rocket science for high performers, but there's a certain level that they start every day at zero. Almost like the scoreboard rolls back and it's okay, today's a new day, a new game, and I'm going to attack or go after today for what it is. And whereas maybe someone not performing at that level, they're dwelling on something in the past, 
or looking out the windshield, they're like, oh, that's a mountain that I'm never going to be able to climb. And maybe it's largely attitude related before they ever step foot out the door in the morning. And from there, I think that's where you have high performers who truly have an opportunity in a team setting to, to impart on those around them. Can you bring someone up to your level? Garrett, do you play golf? <laughs> I used to be a golfer. And back in sales, a lot of golf was uh, played and business was done there. With two kids and a cycling habit, I do not play much golf anymore. Because when you were answering that question, what I thought about was, now I understand why I have never excelled at golf. Because when I hit one of those bad shots, I'm not able to let it go. I take it around the entire course with me. Thank you for explaining that. And I think that's something, I mean, again, we all grow and we're all in a different position with our career and our performance level. I can go back and think about times when maybe I was in a rut or had a series of outcomes that maybe weren't what I desired. And, and I think that's one of the things as you can say is somehow you got to that rut and it's probably you had to hit a first bad shot somewhere. <laughs> and then it was which decision or, or fork in the road did you take next? And I don't think anyone, regardless of how successful they've been, has been truly impervious to that. And looking back, that's probably where a lot of growth happens. On the golf course, probably where a lot of frustration happens. <laughs> yes, it sure does. I can certainly vouch for that. Yeah, there have been many times I've wondered, why did you take up this sport? There's so many to choose from. And you chose golf? It's so frustrating. But I love golf. I love being out there. What do you believe is the most effective coaching on teamwork that you've received during your lifetime that's helped you get better in your job today? For, for me, the most impactful coaching has come in the form of sitting down with a coach or a leader or a superior and, and dissecting maybe how we got there, but not giving the answer. So it's not saying, hey, here's the answer sheet to the test. But if you could go have a second crack at this, what would you do? Or maybe running a parallel scenario and saying, hey, here's something I did in that scenario. Going back to family business, right? When I started in business to business sales and you can frame it however you want, always ask for the check or always ask for the sale or the order. However, you were taught those, some of those mantras, but the guy that gave me my first job and was my first mentor, he would always draw parallels to, to times for him that it did or didn't work out. So he taught through visions or experiences that he had. And so the feedback and coaching, one, it never felt critical, but it also felt like his hand was on the rope with you. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if you've got someone who's in a position of leadership, they probably had success on some level. To know that person had the hand on the rope with you and they had been in your shoes and felt the same struggles, that coaching really resonated for me at that age. And I see a lot of parallels with that here. The environment is so collaborative. We celebrate a lot of team wins here at Foster Victor when things go well. But you also recognize that there's a lot of periods where there's growth and learning and coaching. And you've got people here that are as equally invested in that as you. Mechanical components of how do you develop a sales skill or how do you become better at golf? Those mechanical things are largely taught through minor tweaks and changes. But the actual coaching 
to say, hey, I've been there. I understand what you're going through and my hand's on the rope with you. What's an aha moment that you had later when you were no longer playing college baseball that has really stuck with you? Specifically going back to the sports thing, I've said this, our coach in college, none of us, I've talked with other guys that I've played with and then obviously was around for three or four years after on the coaching side of things, did not appreciate at the time some of the life lessons and skills that were being taught in that environment. Little attention to detail things that as a 19, 20 year old kid, you're like, why do we have to do this? What's an example of that, Garrett? Showing up to the field clean shaven, or we coordinate certain things in our locker this way, or when we travel, this is a a standard of dress. And and at the time, you're thinking, man, I'm working under a drill sergeant. No, these were attention to detail things. and, And these attention to detail things were going to help you, whether you were making a widget or you were the owner of a company or CEO of an organization. And the life lessons that they use to teach these attention to detail things, it was probably a combination of those attention to detail things and creating a standard and then living to that standard. Looking back, I probably wish I could have slowed down and appreciated them more. There, there are times I think through, throughout business today, I'm like, man, coach got that right back then. Yeah, probably just wishing that I wasn't a, 18, 19-year-old kid when I received some of those lessons or could have slowed down in the moment. Turns out coach knew what he was doing after all, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Most of the time, coaches or parents are right. The 18, 19, 20-year-old version of us may fail or not want to admit that frequently, but usually they are. 18 or 19, we already know it all. (laughs) Absolutely. Factual statement. It's only later in life we discover that we didn't know it all. <laughs> so, but at the time, we can't see that. So do you stay no. in touch with any of the guys that you played baseball with? Yeah, it's become a lot more difficult as families have grown, people have scattered. But yeah, there's the, whether it be a, a golf trip here or, or getting together with one of the guys when you happen to be in the same city or the inevitable, now that Apple has brought us together with the wonderful world of iMessage and group text, Somebody invariably snaps a picture when they drive through campus and says, hey, do you remember this? Yeah, there's a pretty good group of us that that stay together and um, pretty confident we'll have some lifelong friends from guys I played with, yes. Yeah, that level of camaraderie and teamwork can last a lifetime. Mm-hmm. It absolutely can. And I've got guys that beyond baseball, but in professional stops, regrettably, the guy who gave me my first job and was a mentor He's no longer with us, but he was somebody I spoke with and had regular counsel. One of my stops in corporate America, there's still some people I'm really close with and use them as a sounding board from time to time. I think some of the bonds that are created from various times you were on teams, there's a certain seasoning and hardening that comes from being in that team environment. And I think you take something away from that and those relationships can often live far beyond that version of that team. What's one piece of wisdom or encouragement that you would like to leave with our listeners today? This one for me is one that I've put a lot of thought into the last three or four years. I've entered this phase of my career. And I remember 17, 18, 19-year-old me, part of what drove me was being afraid to fail. And I wish I could go back 
and, and remind that version that, that it was, it's okay to fail gracefully. That's how we learn. That's how we grow. I, can, I wish I could go hold up a scoreboard right now and just draw lines of times and share events of times that I failed from when I was 17, 18, 19 years old and how I use those every day today. I think it's taken me a long time to learn that. And I wish that I would have learned it um, a lot sooner. Um, but just being able to, to, to take a risk and not being afraid of, of the outcome, but failing gracefully and then just learning from it in the moment and carrying that with you going forward. I love that. And it reminds me of that saying that if you never do anything wrong, it means you weren't doing anything at all, right? Absolutely. And I wonder for me personally, if I'd have a few less gray hairs and maybe <laughs> uh, would have had a few more nights where I got a lot more sleep if I wasn't so worried about an outcome that maybe never would have was going to happen anyways. But I was afraid of what might happen. And also, I think it goes along with that. I'd love to know your take on this is just worrying about what other people are going to think if you make a mistake. Yeah, again, something 12, 15 years ago, I'd have been terrified about what other people think. I'm less concerned about that now. And, and now knowing that, hey, we're all going to make mistakes, I, I'll try to make as few as possible. But if I make one, own your mistake. And, and, and guess what? The sun's going to come up tomorrow. And it's how you handle and deal with that mistake that is ultimately going to be the, the character and definition that people judge you by, not like just what other people think about you. Yeah, if we could all go back and tell our younger version, a couple, maybe one or two tidbits of wisdom. Was there any particular person in your life who you received impactful coaching from that has really shaped you? Yes, as an unpolished 21-year-old graduate of college, I had accepted a position to, to go work for a company and a, a family friend who was also a business owner offered me a, a position to come work with them. And I joked that my first employment contract was signed on the back of a napkin in a lean-to in the rain. But for the next six years, uh, a man named Steve Steele was a, a mentor to me. He was a father figure, a boss, a coworker, a coach, all of those things. And the life lessons that he weaved into to me growing as a salesperson and, and, and growing as a, a young adult and young man, I, I find myself looking back now. So Steve's no longer with us. He lost the battle with ALS, but he's just been really impactful for, for so many reasons. And the skills that he taught me from a work ethic perspective, a standard perspective, there are too many to share in a podcast, but I find myself looking back on those with a lot of fondness quite frequently, even with what I do today. And something that you just mentioned, and it, it's really important for all leaders to recognize, and a lot of times we don't, is that sometimes we're just working and working away, and we don't even know if we're making an impact on somebody's life. But we are. We are, whether we know it or not. And that's yeah. so important to remember as a leader. It absolutely is, even as much of a father figure or a second father figure as Steve was to me. Even at that time when I was employed under him, I probably didn't say it enough, the impact that he was having on me as a personal level. Now, fortunately, there were a significant number of years after where I got to spend with him where I was a professional working relationship where I got to make all of that very clear. But Sally, you're exactly right. It's, it's, 
you, you don't recognize or, or maybe you don't verbalize sometimes the impact that, that these leaders and those that are close to you have on you in whatever that, that leadership or directive role may be. And I think that would be a great place for us to close our conversation today is to just recognize that and encourage people that if there's somebody in your life, and we all know there is, if there's somebody in your life who is having a positive impact in shaping you, let them know. Absolutely. I, I, could, I couldn't say it better. Unfortunately, I got the opportunity to, to do that with Steve. Garrett, it is always wonderful being with you, talking to you. You are very high energy. And you talked a lot today about setting a high standard and sticking with it. And I'm really glad you talked about that because when I interact with you, that is what I see. That's what I experience. So now I know where that comes from. Sally, I appreciate you saying that. I I thank you for having me on today as your guest. And just thank you for this opportunity and, and look forward to the next time we can connect. Hey, thank you for being here today on this important conversation. If this was valuable to you, will you share it? And let me know what questions you have about developing exceptional teams. And you might just hear your answer right here in the future. Join me next week for another episode of the Team of a Lifetime Show.